Hello, hello. I am Karen Jean-François, and this is the Women in Data podcast, a podcast where every other week I interview some of the most inspiring women working in data. They discuss how data is used in various industries, share their knowledge and experience in the field, and equip you with tips to help you overcome challenges on your career and feel great. Let's get straight to it. I am joined today by Sheila Byfield, who has had a long successful career in media and advertising, mainly in research and data analytics. She recently wrote a book called In With The Old, In With The New, which she claims she wrote out of frustration over the direction the advertising business has taken and also over the way that companies treat their customers. Above everything, her mantra is that technological and data development are exciting and have great potential, but that more human intervention and common sense need to be applied to the applications, all of which is discussed in this episode. To me, this episode sounds like the start of a debate, so please come and comment on LinkedIn. Hi, Sheila. Welcome on the Women in Data podcast. Hi, Karen. Nice to join you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I am excited about this conversation we are going to have. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint you. (laughs) (laughs) You will not. I read your book, took so many notes, and I have to say it was amazing. I spent so much time laughing and thinking, (laughs) oh my God, I need to to meet her. And actually, we don't live far from each other, so we definitely should go for coffee at some point. Or something maybe a little bit stronger. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Before we, we get into today's topic, can I invite you to introduce yourself, maybe give us a brief summary of your career and, and what it is that you do? Okay. Well, I've had a very long working life. I started working when I was 16. And strangely, very strangely, my working life started and ended in research, but they were two very, very different types. My first ever job was doing research into raw drugs in a school of pharmacy. And my last job was conducting research into brands, media, advertising, especially advertising effectiveness for a global media agency. So I started and ended with research, but very different types. My advertising career though, spanned over 40 years. And in that time I worked in newspapers, magazines, commercial television for ITV, and then for a big advertising agency, Ogilvy. And then that was followed by Mindshare, which, as you probably know, is a huge global media agency. So that's a very brief summary, but that's uh, that's my career in a nutshell. And what's the latest role you had at Mindshare? Okay, well, it, it changed a little bit. When I started Ogilvy, my job was focused in the UK. And then I set my eyes on the European team and I joined them. And during that time, we merged the media functions of two big agencies, J. Walter Thompson and Ogilvy, to create Mindshare. And it was funny because I had had a bet with a, with a friend at another agency on who could be first to get global into their, into their job title. <laughs> and in the very early days of Mindshare, somebody came to me and said, Sheila, what do you want on your business card? And I thought, uh-uh. So I said, Global Director of Research and Insights. And there it was. <laughs> And you know what? Nobody questioned it. And it was years later, I suddenly thought, you know, nobody ever gave me that job. I just took it. 
I don't think the senior management at Mindshare even knew about that. I think everyone just assumed that someone else had appointed me to the role. Anyway, it worked out wonderfully. I had a fantastic job. I had a great time at Mindshare. I was basically traveling the world, doing really very interesting stuff with, uh, with a huge team of great people, some of whom you've had on your, on your podcast, I think. I, I love how you just decided to create your own job title <laughs> to win your bet. <laughs> well, of course, when you see when you bring two companies together, everybody assumes the other side has done something. So Ogilvy would presume that J. Walter Thompson had appointed me to this job. And uh, J. Walter Thompson must have assumed that Ogilvy had. So I just, uh, I just grabbed it. It was great. Way to go. So you you did mention that 40 years in advertising and, oh my God, the knowledge you must have acquired and all the impact you must have had in this time. And you're not woman in data per se, but you work in advertising and advertising is such a massive industry and there is so much things going on in data in that field as well that I definitely wanted to talk with you and learn more about what happened in advertising in the past and what's happening now and how data is working with all that to make everything great. So maybe could you give us a bit of background on what different media you had available back then and how this changed over time? Okay, well, when I first started in advertising, the media scene was relatively simple. I mean, it was comprised of print, cinema, radio, television and outdoor. I mean, I think that's that's how we described it. And I don't think we even talked much about direct mail. I mean, I think it was just, you know, just those, we call them traditional media now. Of course, they're still around. Of course, the media world has has changed enormously since then, particularly with the advent of digital media. But in reality, I think digital channels simply add more ways to reach people. I think that the principles of advertising, you know, haven't changed. The challenges haven't changed. And also, I feel quite strongly that it's very rare that the new totally replace the old. They tend to sit alongside one another quite comfortably. I mean, things have definitely changed, but and digital goes across all different types of media. But people may be watching on different types of screens, but it's still television or film. They might be listening or reading on a screen, but it's still it's still radio or print. It's the devices that have changed, not necessarily the content. There is, of course, a very big exception to that, and that is things like classified advertising or directories like Yellow Pages, which have almost been totally replaced by, uh, by search. But having said that, there are big differences in how people respond to commercial messages in different environments. And I'm sorry to say that the written word on screens is mainly not quite as effective as paper when it comes to recall. And video in social media isn't as effective as television or cinema unless the content, the advertising content covers the whole screen. There is a lot of excellent work that's been done on this. Anne Mangan of um, Norway's Stravanger University has done some really interesting studies on responses to different reading formats. And there's a lady down in, in Australia, Karen Nelson-Fields, uh, she's a professor from the University of Adelaide, and she's done some great work on the differences in effectiveness between TV, YouTube and Facebook. So that some of that work is really worth, worth looking at. My, my big feeling, though, is that, yes, devices have changed. Yes, the media scene has changed. But the, our objectives haven't really changed. We're still trying to put persuasive messages into places where people are going to pay the most attention and be the most responsive. 
My big frustration, though, is that digital media communities act like the digital world is totally different from the rest of the advertising world, when in reality, I believe that the principles of effectiveness are exactly the same. It's just we have a lot more options. If you remember, we were promised a very different and more exciting world, both for us ad people and also for our audiences. We were going to leave the world of interruption and enter a world of happy engagement with people. We were going to stop shouting at them and start listening to them. We were going to stop talking at and start talking with. The media world was, I mean, I I remember this very well. The media world was beside itself with excitement. There was such a frenzy going on. But in actual fact, when, you know, in reality, Things haven't turned out quite as was promised. The interruption model that was going to die, if anything, I think it's more prevalent in online media. Response rates are quite often very low. Ad exposures are often robotic. Personal data are used and abused, and we're still struggling with how to measure all of it. And as a result, we have trust in advertising that's at an all-time low, and ad avoidance is at an all-time high. So I'm not suggesting, by the way, that digital media are not exciting or influential or effective. They've had a fundamental influence on our lives and they can be very powerful advertising vehicles when they're used well. I guess I'm just frustrated that there are so many experts who've devoted lifetimes into understanding how advertising works and all of that knowledge is not really being applied to the digital world. You know, the great rules haven't changed. If anything, they should be reinforced as our ad environments become more complex and cluttered. So when I was doing research for my book, I I did a lot of interviews with senior and junior ad executives, and I was shocked as to how little some of them knew about the great academic work that's out there. You know, for example, there were many who hadn't come across the extensive work by Les Burnett and Peter Field, which shows conclusively the dangers of short-term strategies when advertising and the dangers of switching from brand building to activation, And they also point out quite clearly what the balance should be between digital channels and other forms of media. If I was a client, I wouldn't allow anybody to work on my brand unless they have this sort of knowledge. So it's a very exciting world that we're in. Yes, everything is changing. The principles, I think, are the same. And I think we should maybe go back to basic a little bit more often rather than just always standing up, hyping everything up. You know, the media industry just always feels as if it has to be saying something new when in reality it might be a good idea just to go back to some of that basic learning and then apply it to today's world. I totally hear what you're saying. So basically because today everything moves so fast and then things are changing, we see new technologies coming in. And I remember when everybody was talking about programmatic and how big of a change it was going to be for the media and advertising scene. And it it just feels like because for some reason it feels like everything are different it could potentially feel like we should act differently and maybe remove all the things that were learned as as you said but I wanted to come back to something you said about you know the promise of stopping shouting at people in advertising Uh when, when you were saying that I had this flashback of an ad I had on YouTube not so long ago of someone who was shouting literally stop posting on social media if you want to grow your coaching business I don't know if you've had this ad but every time I was trying to to listen to music I had this lady shouting at me and (laughs) (laughs) what you said made me think of that 
there are there, there are theories that you can you know you can persuade people through irritating them. I I think it's nicer to persuade people with beautiful images and there's some beautiful brand advertising around, especially in the past. You know, glossy glossy monthly magazines full of sumptuous stylish beautiful advertising and we've also had great advertising and in film too but interestingly and I think I mentioned this in my book there's a a genius in creative in the creative world called John Hegarty he's so famous and quite recently sometime last year he was he was interviewed by campaign magazine and he was asked to recall some memorable advertising from nowadays and he really struggled I mean he did give a bit of credit to Marmite, I think it was, and to Netflix, but he was struggling to think of great campaigns. Maybe we've sacrificed too much emotion and creativity in favour of of data. You know, everything's data-driven. You know, data could probably, well, probably can, can create your next commercial. Is that really as good as the emotion and the passion that goes in, you know, from the likes of John Hegarty and so on? I think we need a better balance. I'm not sure that I can actually create a commercial, but I see the <laughs> I can I can see the benefits of using data to basically power advertising. Maybe because you know you were talking earlier about where you're putting your ad and the fact that there are some things that show that an having an ad that takes all the the screen has a bigger impact of a small ad in the corner. And you also talked about reading the newspapers and the cinema and when you're in these situations you're in completely different states of mind so in your book you give a lot of data around time pressure and ad effectiveness and but this is my own opinion this is where data really powers advertising in understanding maybe where to put things in and how to do it well maybe not how but when and what, to make sure that you put the right content at the right time? What do you think about that? I really agree with you. I've, I've long held the view, and I've done a lot of work on this, that one of the most influential factors in ad effectiveness is time pressure. And if you just think, or listeners, just think about your own media behavior for a moment. You know, I would gamble that you're far more relaxed and open to suggestions when you're reading your favorite magazine than when you're reading your trade press. You know, if you're listening to radio when you're driving to work in the morning, the you know, the whole focus is on news, it's on traffic, it's on the weather. You're probably thinking about the day ahead, you're time pressured, you don't want to be late. And I would suggest that isn't a particularly good time to try and sell you a holiday. But when you're driving home at the other end of the day, you know, you're much more relaxed and expansive, and that Caribbean cruise might sound a little a lot more appealing. And I have to say that there are some radio channels that understand this very well. And they schedule programs that are appropriate to the mindset of the audience at different times of the day. But I also think this might apply to online media too, because with online media, social media and and so on, we're often very time pressured. We're often very active. And I don't think that planners take that into account sufficiently with digital channels. And as I say, I've done a lot of work in this area and people's reactions to advertising are very different when they're in a time pressured situation than when they're casually browsing or being entertained. You know, if you're looking for an emergency plumber, it's not a good time to be seeing chocolate ads, is it? But when you're browsing, looking for holidays or being entertained by online media, then certainly I think that's a very good time to advertise. And I think digital channels should do more work on why people are there, not the fact that they are there. We know that millions and billions of people are using online media, but um, ubiquity doesn't mean effectiveness. 
the fact there are lots of people there does not mean that they're all going to respond. I just think we need to understand more about the why rather than the fact that they just happen to be happen to be present. So I totally agree with you. You can use a lot of data to feed that process. But wouldn't it be lovely to have all the digital media coded somehow as to why people are likely to be there? Because the difference is between going to a holiday site and going to searching for an emergency of some sort are going to give you totally different ad environments. And I'm not saying you shouldn't advertise in, in places where people are time pressured because there might be a role for it, but the advertising, my goodness, the advertising has to be totally relevant. You know, there's no point putting sumptuous brands in front of people when they're in some sort of, when they're in a rush. And I just think we need to understand that a little bit better. And it's data, of course, it's data that can, uh, can help us understand that. So I totally agree with you. But time pressure is very important. And understanding this why, so why people are there and understand really what we should put in front of them at what particular moment is yeah. is the key there. And I do feel like this is a bigger question in data in general. So in any industry, any field you're in, it's always understanding the why and the what and using data to be able to address that. So I agree. I mean, the, the, the whole subject of data, your podcast will go on for centuries. I mean, it's such a big topic. You, you're, never going, you're never going to cover it all. But overall, I think, we are overestimate, maybe overestimate the power of data when it's when it's just in isolation, without you know without some sort of human intervention. And, and my favourite words are common sense. I just think there's a bit of an obsession with the size of the data sets and not enough emphasis on the quality of the inputs that go into them. You know, the IPA produced an excellent report called The Big Opportunity, which has a great quote in it from Richard Marx. I think it's in my book somewhere. Oh yes, here it is. And he said, he's a very good research consultant, and he said, a balanced controlled sample of a thousand individuals with a high response rate will always be more representative than a million plus customers drawn from an imbalanced self-selecting sample. Big does not always mean beautiful. And, you know, we have to ask how and why are people in these databases? When we join databases together, are they are they compatible? I have a friend who is about 69 and he does a lot of online surveys and he realized he was being bounced out when he said he was a man, age 60, whatever. And so he now responds as a 44-year-old mother of two children <laughs> and gets to do the survey and gets the reward point. Now, I don't think he's typical. But you have to question the the quality of the of the sample that you're you're working with, and once but, you know. And sorry to interrupt. And this is very true because when you think about it, every time you do a survey, the first thing they ask is age, gender, and some some kind of demographics things. And not yeah. everybody feel like they want to answer that question, and not everybody feel like it's relevant. So people tend to lie anyway. So you're right. It's the quality of your data and how do we actually make sure that the data is truthful. You do talk in your book about, was it in your book that I read that? I remember, maybe I read it somewhere else as well. This example of Google trying to predict was oh, it the, the flu. flu? The yeah. Flu yes, that was very interesting. I mean, the, the good news about that, I'll, I'll talk about it in a second, but the good news about that is, of course, we learn from these things. But they said that because they had Google search data, in my opinion, is A, it's a huge database, but it's got to be the most truthful database anywhere, hasn't it? I mean, if you're if you're searching for a recipe for beef, you're not going to put in lamb. 
If you if you want to know the symptoms of mumps, you're not going to put in measles. It's a truth, God. I mean, there's quite a lot being written on that. But the Google example was they reckoned that with search data, they could predict where and when flu epidemics break out because people would search for various symptoms. But in reality, when this when the uh, flu season came, they overestimated the number of cases over 100% more. They predicted double the amount of cases that they were. Of course, advertisers were using these data to advertise in, in areas where the flu was going to was going to appear and also to stock up the pharmacies with flu remedies. The commercial implications were quite serious. But as I say, you know, it's a very good example of relying on big data too much. But they learned from that. They could adjust the algorithm. And now maybe their predictions will be accurate or more accurate. But there are loads of examples from, from predicting flu to also look recently at the, the predictions of election outcomes, you know, both in America and in this country. We seem to get it very wrong from huge samples, huge samples. I think it's a bigger problem, though, as our lives become dictated by algorithms. And there's an increasing number of influences that data are having on our lives. And I'm talking about data that then leads on to algorithms that then lead to artificial intelligence. And some of that's very scary because the data that feed many of these algorithms are riddled with biases. If you want to know more about that, there's a, a very good book called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. She's amazing. And also there's a, a fantastic mathematician called Hannah Fry. They've both written books and they're amazing women. They can explain this far better than I ever could. But my point is that if, and it's a big if, we can apply some common sense to technological developments, we might be able to start addressing the problems rather than creating them. So the opportunities from data and big data are just fantastic, but we tend to rely on it, we trust it too much. And as a result, we don't intervene, we don't add common sense. I think I told you the last time we were speaking about a, a young researcher who worked with me at Mindshare, and I asked him to do a an analysis of a very big European database. And he came back with the remarkable finding that 85% of women in France over the age of 65 go to the cinema once a week, at least once a week. And I said, really? You know, how old is your grandmother? And I think she was 70. I said, how often does she go to the cinema? Ah, never. <laughs> uh, you know, and he showed me the screen and he was just, he was totally convinced this was a fact because the computer said so, because the data, there was a glitch in the data, the data were wrong. But if you didn't apply common sense, you know, to that, you have to think, does it make any sense? And if it doesn't, you've got to question it. So I just think we trust it too much. We rely on them too much. And if you put common sense and human intervention into data analysis, you get the best of both worlds. It just seems to make a lot of sense to me. It's definitely a lot down to to experience because I, I guess your junior analyst he doesn't he was not used to question the data he was getting and I do feel like as data analysts and data scientists it is our duty to to really check that our data is either representative of the population or that it makes sense because at the end of the day the output of your analysis and the conclusions you're going to draw from from that are as good as your data really so if your data has poor quality your analysis is always going to have poor quality as well really what you're saying is we could definitely use data to make better decisions but we need to make sure that we have this common sense and this questioning attitude absolutely it's anything that involves 
emotion, empathy, understanding, which I think is most things actually, probably needs human intervention and we should never forget that. But yes, yes, please bring it on, the technology that's going to make make our lives easier and more convenient. As you said, over time, we're going to learn more and more and the, well, the algorithms are going to learn more and more and we will learn, learn from our mistakes and things will get yeah. better. Yeah, they'll get cleverer. We're in a situation where we're in danger of creating more problems than we're solving. John, I think it was President Kennedy said the brain is much cleverer than a computer. And it is. The two go together. It's not one or the other. It's both sitting alongside compatibly. Sheila, what are the changes? I guess we we spoke about that quite a bit, to be fair. But as a summary, what kind of changes would you like to see in the industry? Well, I said it earlier, I think, but I think there's a serious need to go back to basics. For example, if you talk to people about their brand experiences, they usually talk about the taste or how it looks or whether it works, whether they like it or not. They rarely talk spontaneously about a brand making them feel wanted or human or loved or moved or empowered, released or whatever. So I think we have to get real, go back to some basics when we're looking at people and their behavior. And I also think that a back to basics approach would be a big benefit when training people in the ad industry. You know, we said earlier, things have changed. A lot of things have changed, but many of the principles haven't changed at all. And I feel there isn't sufficient understanding of some of them. I can't overestimate how much I believe in training. I think that if you're not training your staff to help them perform and to develop, I think it's nothing short of professional neglect. So, I mean, if I cast my mind back before I visited even one client when I started working at ITV, I spent time touring the region that I represented. I went out with retail salespeople selling products into shops. I visited the studios, that was the fun part, to see how programs are made and spent time learning about audiences and programs and campaign evaluation. And the same was true when I when I joined Ogilvy. My first weeks, before I started my job, my first weeks were spent with account planners, account managers, creative directors, and new business teams. And in both cases, what that means that when I started doing my job, I had a much more rounded understanding of how the business worked. And I could talk to clients far more knowledgeably than I could possibly have done with a one-dimensional view that was limited to my own discipline. So I think that nowadays we should give a better all-rounded type of training in the advertising world and the, and the data world. You know, when you're a data analyst, don't you think it's important to understand how those data are collected, you know? The composition of the database that you're working with is back to the blind trust in it. I'm also very critical, by the way, of the, about the number of people who work in agencies who've never met the users of their clients' brands and its competitors. And I think that agency management and clients as well should insist that everybody working on their business should gather insights through contact with brand users. You know, I used to hang around shops. I watch people buying things. And it's very easy to interrupt them. You don't have to behave like a researcher you just say something like oh I haven't tried that coffee what's it like I always buy this one what do you think of this one don't you think it's a bit expensive you know and they will talk to you it's really easy this is a huge advantage because you're going to make your clients very happy you know you'll build up an insights database over time it'll grow and grow and grow your clients will love you and I would go further and make it a personal performance measure. I just don't think anybody should work on a piece of business if they haven't been out and met the users of it. I guess my big message really is, for God's sake, use some common sense. You know, think about how your mum would react. 
to some of the rubbish that you talk. You know, there's too much jargon. <laughs> and remember, and remember what George Bernard Shaw said. You know, common sense is instinct. Enough of it is genius. Thank you so much for sharing that. And just one last question before we close. You gave us quite a lot of content and references as well, and I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes. So all the research we, you spoke about. But is there anything that you read or listen to or watch that helps you in your career that you could yeah. share with us? Yes, lots. I'm a big podcast fan. They didn't appear early enough, in my opinion. I mentioned her earlier. There's a, a lady called Hannah Fry. She's written a book which I've just bought. It's called Hello World. It's how to be human in the age of the machine. It looks like a fascinating book. So she's very good. And she has a podcast. So if you search Hannah Fry, you'll you'll come up with her podcast. She's very, very good. She's a very human academic. As I mentioned, there's a lot of a lot of books. Invisible Women is very good. I'm a bit of a, a feminist, I'm afraid, but um, Invisible Women <laughs> is very good because it shows quite a big book, but it shows it demonstrates how biased data are. So, for example, women are far more likely to die in a car crash because the crash dummies are all based on male shapes. Yeah, women are not diagnosed with heart disease often enough because the they have different symptoms to men. And there are lots and lots and lots of examples of how data bias is affecting our everyday lives. But there is some nice, there's some very good advertising and marketing. There's the Digital Human on Radio 4. That's a very nice podcast. The Market and the IPA, they have a podcast. Marketing Week has a podcast too. All of those advertising and marketing podcasts are pretty good. There's some nice interviews. I, I, I'm quite a follower of Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy. He's very big in behavioral science and uh, he's quite often on on the radio he's worth he's worth following too so yes there's a lot thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today Sheila it was such a pleasure to chat with you it was great thank you very much indeed thank you for listening to the women in data podcast we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new guest until then, if you have two minutes, it would be great if you could leave us a rating or a review as it helps not only to make the podcast more visible, but also to enhance the content. If you don't want to miss the next episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We are also on LinkedIn. And if you wish to, you can even register to the community for free. All you have to do is head to womenindata.co.uk. Have a great day.